All right, can you hear me back there? Is that good? Okay, all right. So uh, let us start with a prayer. So, no, I've been doing this priest thing for a long time, but you know what I'm really bad at? Like making up prayers out of my own words. And so it's like, anytime I get asked to pray for something, I feel like a fool because it never comes off very well. At least I don't think so. It sounds like a, like a third grader wrote it or something. But, but so I always like to just start with the Lord's Prayer because how do you improve on that, right? Jesus taught it. So, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know if I should have some sort of a inferiority complex with a smaller crowd this week, and I'm the one that's teaching, or were people scared away because of Father Eli's teaching last week? I don't know which one it is. But. So, what, what, what was that? Yeah, I, I'm already over it. I just wanted to bring it up for a few words. So, so actually, the the, uh, the sisters brought this picture out. Is those of you that have been here for the last couple of weeks uh, know that both in both classes I've chimed in and made reference to this picture, and so uh, it's before. The restoration. If you saw the Sistine Chapel now, it looks very, very different because it's restored. There's a restoration. It's much more vibrant in its color. So this is a very old copy from before the restoration. So, so I was telling one of the sisters, I, I, you probably don't know this, but I mean, how many of you have been to Rome and into the Sistine Chapel? Okay, what's the number one rule that you don't do in the Sistine Chapel? You don't take photos. Well, you don't want to lay down either. You'll be like, you'll be like <coughs> trampled. But you don't take photos. And so there's always a guard in the Sistine Chapel, let's say in, in like 15 different languages. Silencia, no photo, no photo. And it's like, but the reason why, but people don't understand why, they, why you can't take photos. Most people don't know. And the reason is because the restoration of all the frescoes in the Sistine Chapel was made by an agreement with either a company in Japan or Japan itself, that they paid for it, they sponsored for it, untold millions of dollars to restore it, for the rights to have all, to have all the photographic rights for 99 years. So your photos and your flashes or whatever, and most cameras don't have flashes these days anyhow, your photos, your flashes, don't do any harm to the Sistine Chapel. It's all copyright, it's all based on copyright, which is interesting. I find it somewhat interesting anyhow. Another thing about the Sistine Chapel, here I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep talking about the Sistine Chapel. I could talk for hours about this. So the Sistine Chapel also have, is the exact same size as the temple from the time of Jesus. When you hear about Jesus being in the temple, so it was built purposely to be the same exact size as the temple. And then also, if you ever go into the Sistine Chapel, all the light in the Sistine Chapel is completely artificial, but you would never know it. Because where the windows are, light's coming in. You think, well, that's just regular light. That's, that's sunlight, but it's not. Everything is artificial so as to protect the frescoes. So any time of the day you'd walk into the Sistine Chapel, it's the exact same type of lighting. I can talk about other things too, but this is not a class about the Sistine Chapel. So, so here's the thing. So as, as I've talked about a couple of times when Father Eli's been the, the main uh, teacher, is that, that uh, I tend, my thing is that I tend to be fairly brief. I, I think that I, I do think that brevity is a virtue, and so I am totally reliant upon your questions. All right, if you don't ask any questions, we will be out here before the snow flies. I guarantee you. All right, so which, which might not be a bad thing, but but I certainly encourage you to ask questions, even if it seems like it might, even if it seems like it's off the topic, maybe a little bit. Any type of question that might be in your mind, maybe that's how God works sometimes. You know, it's like. And there's, you know, on the subject that we're talking about, I as a presenter doesn't, don't, I can't think of everything about that subject, right? And so I want you to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions, all right? Because my type of style is very dependent upon your questions, all right? Another thing that, and I think I may have mentioned this at the very beginning, is that, that another thing about my style of teaching, although tonight is not so much the, the, the way, but, but uh, I'm, I'm very apologetic in nature in my teaching. What I... What I mean by that is that I'm not, a, I'm not sorry for anything, but apologetic means, it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to justify. So in the ancient world, um, when Christianity first became a thing, before it was legal, 
a form of teaching necessarily came to where the Christians had to justify to the pagans why they believe what they believe. All right? So it became a form of teaching to justify why we Christians believe this and why we Christians do this. From the Catholic perspective, because now we are in the 21st century, I'd say maybe dating back from the 1970s, maybe 1980s, apologetics in the Catholic tradition basically means, or we've come to use the term of not explaining to pagans why we believe what we believe, but explaining to non-Catholics why we believe what we believe. So the whole, the whole thrust of my teaching, for the most part, is to explain why we believe this, why we do this. And everything about the Catholic Church is completely logical. Everything. All you need is for somebody to connect the dots. And that's what my job is, that's what Father Eli's job is, and that's what the apologetics nature of things is, to connect the dots, to see the logic. All right? And so this, you know, and I have to say, here's, a, here's another thing, just to put it out there, it, maybe it's an early apology, is that, that, that I have never, I mean, what we, so we got together with the sisters, Father Eli and I, we, we go at the beginning of the year, okay, who's going to teach what class? I mean, as long as we've been doing this, I've never taught this subject. So this is going to be really raw, and it might be heresy. No, it won't be heresy. So, so, so the, 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 the topic is God's plan of salvation and original sin. Do you guys get that? Did, they know, did, you, know, did you guys know what that was the topic? So I could have talked about the Sistine Chapel the whole night, and you guys would not have known the difference. Okay, so God's plan of salvation and original sin. And again, if there's anything I say that's like, I'm not going to do that probably, but if there is anything, ask me to clarify. Father Eli's the smart one. He says these things that sometimes are very hard to understand. Over your head, I'm under your feet for the most part. All right. So, but if there is anything that you don't understand um, uh, uh, or anything, just ask questions. I need you to ask questions. So here it is. So here's the deal. When I was in college, I was not a good student, except for in my major. I was, I was a political science major. I was an excellent student with political science. But but with any other class, I was not a very good student. I just never applied myself. And so in the cath in the, so I went to a Catholic college. In the, in the bookstore, in the bookstore of my college was this whole rack of something referred to as cliff notes. You know what cliff notes are? Those of you about my age, I think what younger people call it something different now. Not younger, but you know, I mean younger than me. And so cliff notes, for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, were little booklets that summarized big books. So if a student like me didn't want to read a whole book to write a report on or discuss or whatever, I could buy the cliff notes, right? And then it would just get the, the main points. I could read that thing in an hour and a half flat, and then I, then I had it all done. How many, I mean, we're all familiar. So anyhow, I'm going to give you the cliff notes of the Bible, all right? So this is the absolute bare necessities of what you need to know about the Bible. I'm going to give you the cliff notes. Not that you have to read it all, so, but I, just so... Here's the summary. So here's the summary of the Bible, the cliff notes. Very simple. God created us. He created us good. We sinned. As a result of our sin, God had to fix it. And he sent his son to fix it. That's the cliff notes of the entire Bible. So... Oh, yeah, good night. Yep. I told you it was going to be brief. So, so the, the, the thing is that, that um, uh, everything, of the, everything in the Bible flows out of the first two chapters of Genesis. The whole Bible is a response to the first two chapters of Genesis. That's why it's so prominent in the cliff notes. We're talking about original sin and God's plan for salvation. Now, when we think of like... When we think of the Garden of Eden and the whole story of Adam and Eve, lots of people kind of get stuck a little bit on the story of Adam and Eve. And we have to realize that the story of Adam and Eve is not a historical text. All right? A lot of people have a hard time with that. I remember teaching a class years ago. I was down in Coon Rapids, Minnesota, teaching at a church. And, and I said it's not a historical text. And I had some people so upset at me that they left right in the middle of the class. Because the Bible is not meant to be a historical textbook. Are there parts in the Bible that are historical? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the creation story is a parable. It's a parable to get to a broader truth than just history. Because, you know, I mean, even little kids will 
do, do the creation story. It's like, okay, Adam and Eve, and how did the whole world come from one man and one woman, and how did this happen, how did that happen? I said, Shut up, kid. You know, that's what I usually say to him. But, but the thing is that, that it's not meant, it's not meant, we're not fundamentalists. Okay, a fundamentalist is somebody who actually reads the Bible, they take it literally, right? So we cannot look at the creation story as a literal, historical, textbook truth in that regard. Because that would diminish its importance. The Bible is much greater than a historical textbook. The truths that it's trying to portray, the Bible it's, that it's portraying, that's the important thing. So is the creation story true? Absolutely. Is it historically accurately true? No. And if somebody wanted to argue against that, then I would say, and people do, I would say, okay, if you argue, if you say it's historically accurate true, then which of the creation stories do you believe? Because there's two of them. And they're very different from one another. So which one do you believe? And so we are not fundamental. Here's the, here's the easiest argument. Have you ever run into fundamentalists before? Have you ever had an argument with fundamentalists? You want to know the easiest way to defeat an argument with a fundamentalist? And defeat in all charity, of course. But if somebody, and this actually happened to me one time. I was at, I was at a hospital in Brainerd. This is when I was very newly ordained. I had a I was, I was walking around visiting sick people, and, and I, I was dressed like this, and I, and I, and I had a guy uh, come up to me, and he said, he said, are you a priest? <laughs> yes, I am a priest. And then he said, he said, you Catholics, Jesus purposely said, he said you are to call no man your father. Explain yourself. He's a fundamentalist. And so I said, to say, I, said to him, I will answer your question on one condition. You answer my question. And this is right off the top of my head. I said, why aren't you blind? And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, right? I mean, if you're a fundamentalist, you have to take the whole Bible literally. You don't pick and choose what you want to take literally, because otherwise you become the sole authority. And so the guy walked away. So he was choosing one thing to take literally, but not another thing to take literally. So going back to the creation story, we are not literalists. The truth behind it is what's most important. The truth behind the story of the creation story is what is eternal. All right? But there are aspects, even though we don't say it's a historical textbook, there are obviously elements of the creation story that we say are absolutely positively true. Like there was, was it named Eden? We don't know. But we were created in a way that we are no longer. So we were created in a state of relationship that was at peace with God. And so, was it a garden? Was it, it was, we'll say this, is that when God created humans before we fell, we were in a state of unbroken relationship with God. And so we would say it, Eden would be akin to perfect natural happiness. Because there was no sin. All right? So perfect natural happiness is what Eden would have been. So it would have been paradise. But it's not heaven. So Eden was not heaven. Heaven's way better than Eden. We'll get to that, get that in a little bit. And so God created us in his own image, and hence the brain. Okay. So when he created us, when he created Adam and Eve, he created humans as different from animals. And sometimes I have arguments with animal rights activists, not animal rights activists, but people that think that their dogs are their, their children, you know, People like that tend to have a problem sometimes with things that I say that the church teaches. It's not just me, it's what the church teaches. Is that we alone, as humans, are created in God's image. Sparky is not created in God's image, because you know why? Sparky does not have the capacity to reason or even the capacity to love. Might looks like it might looks like it has love, but doesn't have the capacity. No questions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, does Sparky have a soul? Does Sparky have a soul? Yes, absolutely. Sparky has a soul, but it's not an immortal soul. All right. So because we are created in God's image, we have the ability to reason, hence the brain around God the Father, and we have the capacity for love. So that's when we talk about, when we're talking about that humans are created in God's image, those are the two things. All right. Not that we look like him, but yep. <clears throat> so as a Catholic, priest or otherwise, right, you're not allowed to disagree with anything that the church It depends on what you mean by that. By in the, in the catechism, like this right. is what we believe on 
merit issue. That's what we believe sure. on salvation. Dissent from church teaching. Yes. Yeah, right. Um, you're an advocate, right? You're not allowed to disagree with any of that. I've got free will. I mean, when I, when I got ordained, nobody put a gun to my head and said, you're going to agree with everything in this book. And so there's lots of priests that disagree with aspects of the church teaching. But you can't disagree with dog, dogma. All right. There, 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 are, there are a hierarchy of church teaching. You know, some things are not as grave as other things. And so uh, there's, there should not be a priest in the entire world that does not believe in the Eucharist. Most priests get ordained because of the Eucharist. All right? There should not be a priest in the whole world that disagrees with the fact that there are seven sacraments and then to name them. There might be a ton of priests that disagree with uh, certain aspects of church teaching on the environment, you know, or church teaching on celibacy, you know, for priests. And so there's there's a whole range of different teachings on the church. Some are necessary, some are not as necessary. But so here's here's the important thing, and this is going to get me off the thing here a little bit. So maybe it won't be early, but I like the question. So so here's the thing. It's like. You can dissent, and so, okay, for those of you that are going through RCIA that might become Catholic, you're, you're toying with the idea to get confirmed or something. So once you get confirmed, as you're getting confirmed, you're gonna be asked the question at the Easter vigil, and I'm paraphrasing, do you believe and agree everything that the church proclaims to be true and teaches? That's a, that's a paraphrase. And then you answer, I do, all right? Now, is that a form of like, brainwashing or something like that. No. So here's the deal. It's like you can on very on certain things, not on all things, but on certain things, you can say, I've got a problem with that church's teaching. I don't understand it. I don't think I agree with it. And that's okay, because you know why? Because we're always in a constant sort we're always in a constant search for truth. We all are. So it's okay to say, you know what? I'm just grappling with that. I don't understand why the church teaches that. I don't know if I agree with it. That's okay as long as you keep seeking out the truth. What you cannot say, this is what you can't say, you cannot say, in all my lived wisdom of 45, 50, 65 years or more or less, I am right and the church is wrong. What I believe is right and what the church teaches is wrong. Because that is the height of arrogance. The church in 2,000 plus years of wisdom inspired by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, the mystical body of Christ on earth, with some of the most brilliant minds in all history being the great theologians that establish what we believe and understand through the scriptures, if they're wrong and you're right, there's something messed up with that. All right, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah I and I'm not saying that's where you're going, but that's where my brain went. So. Yeah. So just... So the hard line is dogma versus other. These are recommended beliefs on the environment. On like, so is there a hard line between what you can and cannot disagree with? We um, okay. So let me go back to maybe Catholic theology 101. So on the most basic level, we what we uh, um, what we believe, and this is actually this is from the homily I referred to you all to listen to two weeks ago. That was on my uh, that I gave about the Holy Father, and so and I said this Catholic theology 101 is that we believe that the church as the mystical body of Christ on earth is the voice of Christ. Now, when it comes to the truth, when it comes to the truth with big T, that doesn't change and you can't disagree with that. Now, um, uh, uh, there is development of doctrine and the analogy that's often used that I did not come up with is that you can have a little baby born, you know, I mean, 10 pounds, eight pounds, and in 90 years, it's still the same person, but it looks very different, right? But it's the same person. And so our development of doctrine, our understanding develops over time because we're in time. And God continues to reveal himself through the church and through the brilliance of certain theologians of what doctrine is. And so truth doesn't change, but our understanding of it can develop, if that makes sense. And I, again, that's probably not where your question was going, but... but I would say, from my standpoint, okay, so from my standpoint, I would say that, uh, as I, and I already said this, like you can, you can grapple with the teaching of the church and not totally get it and maybe say, I still don't agree, as long as you keep seeking it, you know, remember what I said, everything about what the church teaches is logical. 
You just need somebody to articulate the logic, okay? And so, from my standpoint, I would say, I will never dissent from church teaching. I personally will not dissent from anything from church teaching. That's, that's, that's in the books. Not some sort of flippant comment from a pope in an interview, you know, but I'm talking about what's in the books. Because the church has a wisdom I don't, you know. And so, is there room for it? There is. But is there room for absolute dissent and saying the church is wrong and I am right? A lot of people have done that over the millennia, but that's, that's a height of uh, arrogance that I don't hope to ever get to. I may be halfway there. I don't know, if, is it, does that make sense? Okay, did you have a question? Well, just say that's a, plot, that's a logic you could apply to a lot of people. I mean, a, a lot of our um, relationships have come transactional and look at the, say, what's going on in the world today. I'm right, they're wrong. You know, that's probably a bad philosophy to have mm -hmm. as a whole. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's bad things and there's good things, but right. you know, very often we're very quick to paint people in, in corners and dehumanize them. Sure, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. No, I know, I know, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, but you know, we're not talking about individual relationships. We're talking about the truth which Christ Himself established, yeah. you know, as a church, you know. All right. Okay, I'm going to get back to my notes, which is like I'm only one tenth of the way through, but it'll go quick. All right. So, okay, so He created us His own image. All right. But besides the gift of life probably the next best thing that God gave us as a gift is a gift of our free will. So God created us with our free will. Lots of times when we think of the creation story, you know, I mean, I'll have little kids say, well, and even adults will say this sometimes, it mostly comes from little kids like, well, why did God just make us good so we didn't sin? Instead of, you know, making it so we could. Well, if he made us that way, then we'd be robots, right? Then that would take away our free will. God gave us our free will. So as Fulton Sheen says, we have the ability in our free will to either be virtuous or vicious. You can't be a saint unless you have the capability of being a Hitler. All right? So he gave us our free will, that we can choose him or not choose him. And so because Adam and Eve chose, and we all know the story, chose sin, chose their will over God's will, because of that, uh, our nature is fallen. And so this is one of the great truths of the Adam and Eve story. Okay, I mean, they're all great truths of it, but as far as like getting away from the textual history part of it, is that God created us good, we sinned, we rebelled against him, and as a result of that, our human nature is fallen. It is fallen. There's a big word that we use for it, and this is a word that makes me sound smart like Father Eli. It's concupiscence. Have you ever heard that word before? So concupiscence is a big word that I like to throw out every once in a while and say that I got a degree. So concupiscence is that, that, that we, that's just another fancy way of saying that we have a fallen nature. So I could have just said fallen human nature. But concupiscence basically means that, that we are drawn to sin. We, are, we desire sin. We are not, because we're not in right relationship with God, remember the, the Cliff Notes story? Because we're not in right relationship with God, we now, in our very nature, which is now fallen and, and, and damaged, desire sin, not because necessarily it's of the bad or the maliceness of sin, well, the, the insane people might uh, draw that, but we choose sin because of the apparent good in it. I'm going to have three glasses of wine tonight because it makes me feel good. There's a good thing about that, all right? And so we're all, nothing sinful about three glasses of wine. I have at least three every night. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you got felt a little, some of you were kind of moving a little uncomfortably there, I could tell. So, so the idea that there's, there's this desire to have something that's apparently good, I'm not calling it sin, but we, we, we draw to sin because of something that's apparently good. All right? So we've got this concupiscence thing. Now, you know, so I'm going to read a passage from the Bible. Some of you may be familiar with this, some of you may not, but this is probably among the most comforting passages in the entire Bible and addresses this whole thing about this. Basically what we all are doing in our entire lives because of our fallen nature, we're struggling with ourselves. We are at war with our very selves, all right? We are at war because we have this desire for this sinful action because we see the apparent good in it. 
But then we know, if we're formed with our conscience, especially in the Christian realm, that that is not a good thing. So there's this, there's this ongoing war inside each one of us. And one of the most comforting passages in the entire Bible is from the book of from Paul's letter to the Romans. All right. Now, I'm going to read this. It's, it's, it's about maybe about a paragraph long. So just try and follow it. He says some things where you kind of get lost, but you're going to get the gist of this. Now, mind you, St. Paul the Apostle, the great evangelist, one of the greatest saints who ever lived. Okay, so this should be somewhat of a comforting passage. So it's uh, chapter 7, starting with verse 15. So this is Paul. He's writing to the Romans. And you can tell he's kind of like going back and forth with himself. He says this. What I do, I do not understand. For I do not do what I want, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I concur that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does dwell in me, that is, in, I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. The willing is ready at hand, but doing the good is not. So like he wills to do good, but he's not doing it. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil I do not want. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So then, I discover the principle that when I want to do right, evil is at hand. For I take delight in the law of God in my inner self. But I see in my members another principle at war with the law of my mind, taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Miserable one that I am, who will deliver me from this mortal body? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, I myself with my mind serve the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. Do you hear what he's saying? This great saint, very human, recognizing his, he's being drawn into sin because of his concupiscence, because of his fallen nature, and yet he's doing these things that he doesn't want to do because of his concupiscence. It's the struggle that every single one of us has to deal with from day one. Well, maybe day one of your seventh birthday or something like that, when you have the, when you have the use of reason. And so that's concupiscence. That's, that's our fallen nature. That's our fallen nature from original sin. Because of original sin, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, death happened. You know, death was not a part of God's original plan. So here comes the Jesus thing, all right? So... Original sin is the cause of death. Sin, we hear, actually, Paul talks about all the time in his writings, that sin causes death. That, that as a result, that's how death came, because of sin came in the world. So God sent his son to conquer death. So when, when I'm talking, you know, I've got a school, and so little kids, you know, I've had school for many, many years now. When I talk to little kids, I'll say, why do you think Jesus is such a big deal? Well, so he's God. Yeah, okay, but why? Why is he such a big deal? And it, when it boils down to it from the most basic level, Jesus is such a big deal because, yes, he's God, but also because he got us so we could go to heaven. He killed death to where he made death nothing more than the window to get to heaven. That's all that death is. You know, St. Therese, the little flower, was asked on her deathbed by one of her fellow sisters, aren't you afraid of dying? She said, why in the heck would I be afraid of dying? She said, death is nothing more than the soul leaving the body. What a great faith. And so Jesus is important, telling the little kids, he's so important, yes, because he's God, but because he killed death. You would have no ability to get to heaven if it weren't for Jesus. And Jesus wouldn't have come if it weren't for the sin of Adam and Eve. In fact, there's the, um, uh, well, I'll get to that in a little bit. Any other questions? Okay. That's fine. Oh. When, you're, when, when you're using that big word that you've had. Concupiscence, concupiscence. yeah. So does guilt come into the picture at all? Yes. Where does it how? Well, I mean, if you do something dumb, you should feel guilty. <laughs> we all do. Well, right, and, 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 and the point of guilt. So, I mean, guilt, you know, people, we tend to think of guilt as a bad thing. Guilt's a good thing, you know, because guilt is the, the you know, the, um, uh, 
the proverbial. It, what was that? The slap in the face. Well, it's kind of it's, it's the proverbial little kid touching the hot pan on the oven. You know, you touch it, oh, I don't want to do that again. You know, so guilt is actually to make us feel like, okay, that was dumb. Don't do it. Don't do it again. So guilt, you know, I mean, but it's bad when guilt gets us to where it smothers us. And believe me, as a priest, I deal with a lot of people who have not been able to get rid of guilt for their entire lives. And, and that's, that's actually a bad type of guilt. Because that's exactly where the devil wants you. Do you remember the, the catechism? You would the Baltimore be, Catechism? Yeah, I'm a lot the, older than the I look. Black, <laughs> the black and white. Yeah, yep. Mortal, venial, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, all sure. of it all. Yep. Yep. Little kids, that's right. how we were taught. So how do you get rid of all of that? Um, you're here. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and so, you know, I mean, it, the mere fact that you, if you stay in the church, you try and learn, you know, the, the Baltimore Catechism was great is that insofar as it tried to get us to memorize doctrinal things about the church and the truths, you know, but it didn't really flush it out too much, you know, so you're left with all these memorized things, but you don't know what they mean. And so RCI is a great uh, opportunity to, to flush that all out. So, uh, yeah, so guilt is bad when it, when it, when it oppresses you but it's good when it keeps you on the right road. All right, does that make sense? All right. All right, so, um, so we spend our lives, kind of going off what I was just saying, what Paul was writing, we spend our entire lives with this inner struggle, and St. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, basically to go off what I was just saying to you in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way, is that, that we equip ourselves with knowledge. We equip ourselves with learning about the truth, we equip ourselves by the sacraments. We equip ourselves to work out our salvation with fear and trembling from a Catholic perspective by being faithful to the sacraments in a particular way and following the church, the truths established by the church that Christ himself established. That's how we arm ourselves in working out our salvation with fear and trembling and then a personal prayer life as well. So remember now, remember what I said about the, the cliff notes. Everything flows... Everything flows in the entire Bible from the first two chapters of Genesis. All right? Everything in the Bible is a response to the first two chapters in Genesis. So the entire Old Testament, you know, we tend to think, well, the Old Testament is the Jewish part. And the New Testament is the Christian part. But that's not true. The Old Testament is a Christian manuscript. It's a Christian document, first and foremost. The whole point of the Old Testament was to prepare us for the coming of the Messiah. And it didn't even adequately appear, uh, uh, compare, pre, pre, prepare us. It didn't even adequately prepare us because when he finally came, people didn't recognize him. Because they thought something else was coming from throughout the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is all about identifying who the Messiah was going to be when he finally came. So it's like, we think of, so, from this Christian document, it's preparing us for the coming of Christ, who's the Lamb of Sacrifice, to save all humankind from the original sin. So think of this. Christ is the Lamb of Sacrifice. So just off the top of my, of my head's and my notes here. So God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. The Hebrews put the blood of a sacrificed lamb on their doorpost to save themselves from death. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. God requires all throughout much of the Old Testament, not all of the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament, God requires of his people sacrificing lambs in the temple in Jerusalem for their sins. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. The Psalms and the prophet Isaiah clearly prophesy about the suffering of the Messiah, a prophecy preparing us for Jesus. The prophets, all the prophets, prepare us for the coming of the Messiah. So the entire Old Testament is a Christian document leading us to, to, to be able to identify Jesus when he comes. And so Christ comes, he comes, Jesus of Nazareth, to fix everything that Adam and Eve screwed up. All right. So this gets me back to um, what I was going to say a few minutes ago, but it's more appropriate here now is that if you were to ever be, and if God willing, if some of you are going to get confirmed or become Catholic or whatever, get confirmed, at the Easter Vigil, at the Easter Vigil, when if you've ever been to that Mass before and all the lights are out, you know, everybody's got a little candle, kind of cool, you know, 
Uh, well, cool is probably not a good word for it. But so the very first thing after you after the priest blesses the the fire, it's a holy fire, and then the Easter candle comes down, and then thank heavens, it's the deacon and not the priest sings the exalted. I can't sing. I really cannot sing. And so the deacon sings the exalted. So all the lights are off. Everybody's got their candle, and the big Easter candle's in its place. And then the deacon goes up there and he sings a super long hymn, and it's a chant. It's a chant. So he sing, it's it's very very long, but it's very very old. It comes back from it comes all the way to the three hundreds. It's so old, and it's always been sung at the Easter vigil, and it's so full of incredible theology. This this chant, it's worth a read. You can Google it and read it. But in one point, probably the high point of the whole exalted, talks about how great the sin of Adam and Eve was. You know, we tend to think, wouldn't it be great if they didn't sin? Just think, we wouldn't have to worry about snow tonight. We wouldn't have COVID. We wouldn't have lawyers. You know, I mean, all these things. Like, there, there, there's a whole lot of things that we wouldn't have. And so, and so it would be that, like, this natural happiness. But at the exalted, this fourth century th from the 300s chant says, Oh, happy fault. Oh, necessary sin of Adam that won for us such a great Savior. Because heaven beats the hell out of Eden. Because Eden was natural happiness. But you know what wasn't in Eden? God. God was not in Eden. Remember what happens after Adam sins. God comes into Eden and looks for him. So God wasn't in Eden. There was a sense of natural happiness in Eden, but it wasn't heaven. So the exalted says, this sin of Adam was so great because it got us Jesus. And Jesus got us heaven. If it weren't for Jesus, no heaven. Not possible. He says, he says at the Last Supper, we remember the line at the Last Supper, he says, I'm going, the day before he dies, I'm going to leave, you guys, and where I'm going, you're not going to go, you're not going to be able to follow. And Thomas says, well, Lord, where are you going? We don't know the way. And then what does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Very politically incorrect. <laughs> the, the, the cancel culture would have a problem with Jesus for saying that. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. He is the cause. He is the one that made heaven a possibility. And so therefore, original sin, thank God it happened. We want it. In God's divine wisdom, it happened. And he, it did it, he did it because he loves us so much. There's much to suffer to get to heaven, obviously. But he did this because of his love for us. Now, Jesus comes. And now next week is going to be Christology. So I'm, going to be talk, I'm teaching next week too. And that's, Christology is a big word of saying, well, who's Jesus? That's a big word. And so, so the whole thing is going to be about Jesus next next. Um, uh, Week. And so I'm just going to give you a little bit of foreshadowing. Before, before I give you the foreshadowing of Jesus, I'm going to give you a test. All right. Now, I'm going to give you a test, and uh, I'm going to give the exact same test next week. All right. So remember this very well. So the people that are not here, but will be here next week, you can look really smart. Father right. Eli's teaching next week. Father Eli's teaching next week? I got me teaching next week. Oh, okay. All right. That's fine. I'll have to change my calendar. Okay. All right. Okay. Could you send me an email to remind me of that? Okay. That'd be good. All right. So here it is. So here's the test. This will be a test that I give you in two weeks. All right. Don't, and some of you have heard me say this test before because I give this test all the time. All right. And even though sometimes you, it's okay if you fail it multiple times. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay. So here it is. I'm going to give you three, and here's the deal. I do not want you to look at the sisters. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, sisters, you cannot, you cannot take the test. I'm going to give you three statements, and I want you to raise your hand if you think the statement is true. And don't go like this and look around. Raise your hand, okay? So here's the first statement. If you think this statement is true, raise your hand. All right. Jesus is a human person. Okay, put your hands down. Jesus is a divine person. Okay. Jesus is a human and divine person. 
Nope. You all failed. You would have been burnt at the stakes in the Middle Ages as heretics. Only one of those are true. Only one of those statements are true. Jesus is a divine person. Okay? He is a... Now, this is where you're going to say, that was a trick. Jesus is a divine person with two natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature. But he's only one person. If he was a human person and a divine person, we wouldn't have a trinity. We'd have a quadrinity. All right? So he's one person with two natures. I'm going to give that test again in two weeks. And so make sure you remember that, for, especially for the people that are not here. So Jesus, so Jesus sends his son, so we're still talking about original sin and God's plan for salvation. He sends his son, and as theologians say, God could not say what he did not assume. So God sent his son to save us, so he fully assumed our nature. Jesus was fully, completely, totally human in every way that we are, except for sin. He had to relieve himself. All right? He probably stubbed his toe. He's he was fully human. All right? So God could not save what he did not assume. His passion and his death shows us the gravity of sin. If you've never watched Mel Gibson's movie on the Passion, I think that it should be required. Because it shows us the heinousness on the silver screen of sin. So he suffered because of the heinousness of sin. What here's a here's a question, and I want I want somebody to try and guess it. What is and I don't want a sister to answer this, but what is the what is the um, uh, what does Jesus refer to himself as the most in the Bible? I think he does like 38 times. Son of man. Son of man, exactly. Nobody else calls Jesus son of man. Only Jesus calls himself son of man. Okay? So a lot of people, it's like, there's a lot of speculation. Why does he call himself son of man? What does that mean? And there's a couple of different, there's a couple of different things about that. So, so the, and it could be both. And so it's like, there's some references of, in, the, in the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament about son of man. And one coming on the clouds to judge is the Son of Man. But the other one is more appropriate to what we're talking about tonight, is that Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man in a particular way because, here's another question, and I'm leading you on, so this is a really easy question. What does the word, what does the name Adam mean? I thought this was the easy one. <laughs> what? Man. That's all it means. Adam was not a personal name. Neither was Eve. You know what Eve means? You get a gold star. See, you're getting congratulated by those sitting by you. So good job. Yeah, man. And so Eve means mother of all the living. That's all it means. Adam just simply means man. God created man. Okay, so it's not, wasn't Adam as a personal name. It was God created man. And so it, yep. Did Adam have just a regular soul or a eternal soul. There's one of you in every crowd, isn't there? <laughs> so the question is, does, does, does Adam have an eternal soul or a regular soul? So, okay, let me finish my point and I'll get to that in a little bit, okay? Because that addresses another, uh, another um, subject. So I'm going to, now I don't even know where I was. So, so God sends his son as the new man to fix what the old, the first man screwed up. All right, this, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He's the new man. So as St. Paul says, just, so sin, just as sin and death come from one man, through one man, so too does salvation and life come from one man. So Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, is showing himself to be the new man, Adam the old man, and Jesus the new man, so that we could be saved through him. All right. So we could be potentially be saved through him. As I can't remember which saint it says, I think Saint Augustine who said, the God who created us without his cooperation does not intend to save us without our cooperation. So uh, the, the new man can save us, potentially. It's up to us in our free will. So if Jesus is, and I'm going to get to your question, if Jesus, that, first I'm going to finish, 
If Jesus is, if Jesus is who Christians say he is, it should affect every aspect of our lives. All right. As one of my brother priests, a very famous priest, Father Mike Schmitz, has said, and I love this quote, he said, it's not a matter of putting first things first. It's a matter of putting the first thing first. If Jesus is who we say he is, if he is the one, if he's God, and he is the one who fixed everything that we screwed up from the very beginning, from those first two chapters of Genesis, if he is who we claim he is, it has to affect every aspect of our lives. Not that we're all supposed to be monks and nuns, but it's supposed to certainly guide us with every decision we make. Because he came here for us. All right? So uh, we obey Jesus by obeying the church that he established uh, and, rec and recognizing it as his voice. And we'll get more into that even a little bit later, but that's kind of a loaded statement. I'm going to answer your question about, uh, if, why don't you ask it again, just so I understand where, what it was. Um, I was wondering whether or not Adam had a soul that would not be considered eternal um, because he was before Jesus. Jesus. Oh, okay, so now I know where your question is going. <clears throat> hey, sister, can you get me water back there? <laughs> Thanks. So, so okay, so, okay, your question is going different, a different direction than I first thought. And so your question just got easier for me. Okay. okay. So, so, you know, I mean, and this affects a lot of things. So think of, it's not just Adam, but think of everybody that was in before Jesus. Because, I mean, what, Jesus was around just 2,000 years ago, right? We know that there's a lot of people before Jesus, right? The whole Old Testament. We know the whole, all the Egyptians and stuff like that. And so, uh, and all the people. And so, so those people, okay, so this gets into a lot, maybe it isn't as easy as I thought. So, so those people... They, they, because they're still creating God's image, I mean, they're still creating God's image, right? The ability to, to reason, the capacity for love, and they still had immortal souls, right? And so what happened to them? And so we would say that, I mean, and we, we, we you know, this is in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into the place of the dead. And so the, the, the people that were before Jesus were in what... I can't remember which is Greek or which is Hebrew, either Sheol or Hades. It's in, the, it's in the Bible. It's all over in the Bible. So they were in the place of the dead. And that when Jesus died, he descended, he descended, you know, I used to love the Acts of the Apostles as a kid because you could say descended into hell and I could say that word and not get in trouble, you know. And so, but hell is actually a really bad translation. He didn't go to fiery hell. He went to the place of the dead. He went to Sheol or the Hades, whatever you want to call it, and preached the gospel. And so then those people had the, cho the choice. Just because they were born and lived before Jesus didn't mean they didn't have an immortal soul. But the gates of heaven, and hell for that matter, were not open until Jesus came. And so they had the choice. Does that make sense? I, I, mean, I, I mean, Yeah, it does. I have okay. another question. All right. Um, you have three seconds. I'll forget it. Okay, all right. Does anybody else have any other questions? So far, we don't have a ton on it. Yeah? What about the people in the Old Testament who were taken up into heaven, like Enoch? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, and so, um, uh, yeah, it's like, well, Enoch. Elijah is the main one that they, that they speak about. So, you know, so Elijah, I mean, if you remember the story, it's like Elijah got this guy that followed him, Elisha, who was going to be his you know, understudy and was going to be his successor. And uh, Elijah saying, well, I got to go somewhere. Elisha, leave me alone. And Elisha said, no, 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 I want to follow you. I want to follow you. So, okay, you can follow me. And so Elijah knew what was going to happen, or we have a sense that he knew what was going to happen. And he didn't want Elisha to see it. And it's the story of the fiery chariots, right? Fiery chariots coming down and grabbing Elijah and uh, bringing him up to heaven. Let's go back to what I said about fundamentalism, okay? So do we believe literally that there was a fiery chariot that brought up Elijah up into heaven physically? And we'd say, you know, on a fundamentalist basis, literal translation, probably have a little bit of trouble with that. But there's a huge component to that that's why that is super, super important in the Christian realm. Think of who's, okay, let's look at the Jewish realm first. Let's just say in the Jewish realm. At the Passover meal, if you're talking about Orthodox Jews, I'm not talking about like Reformed Jews, but like the Orthodox Jews that still follow like the, the Passover and all that stuff, 
they always have an empty plate. Did you know that? So you have the Passover meal, everybody's eating, and then there's always one empty plate. You know, who, you know what the empty plate's for? Elijah, in case he comes back. All right? So it, it, it's huge in the Jewish world. But from the Christian standpoint, Elijah's really, really important, and his going up to heaven is really, really important, because there's always a sense, and we get this all throughout the scriptures, that Elijah was going to come back. And he was going to come back to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. All right? So Elijah didn't die. He was brought up to heaven, all right, in the big fiery chariot. And he was, he was, that was for a reason. It was for a reason so that he can come back later to get us ready for the coming of the Messiah. So in, in the Christian realm, that story is huge. We don't take it as literally true, but why is it huge? So, so who is Elijah? John the Baptist. Yeah. I mean, even Jesus says it. So on one hand, so in, in one gospel, John the Baptist, because they question him, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not John the Baptist. He even says that. He said, no, he said, I am John the Baptist. He said, I'm not Elijah. Who are you then? I'm not he. I'm the one that prepares for him. But then Jesus, in another gospel, says, uh, 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 he is Elijah. So Jesus knew John the Baptist's nature and his role better than John the Baptist did. So that whole story we would take as a literal truth but we take it as hugely significant in regards to the Jewish realm and the Christian realm. Does that make sense? I remember my question. Okay, all right, better be good. It has to do with forgiveness. Okay. Is, is it that Jesus forgave us uh, um, if we believed in him, or is it that God believes, or is it that God forgave us because we believe in his son? Um. I, I, you probably can't hear him in the back, can you? You're probably better off not hearing him, actually. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just like every time. So, uh, um, and so uh, I'm not so exactly sure the, the question is like, God forgives us. Be, the question is, God forgives us because we believe in his son? Yeah, is it, is it God that forgives us, or is it Jesus? Well, Jesus is God, right? So he's the, he's the second person he's of the Trinity. He's the son of God. Yeah, he's the son of God. Completely, yeah, yep, he's God. He's just as God as God, the Father is. So that's what the Trinity is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Consubstantial. You know that big word that we have in the creed? He's of the exact same substance as God the Father. So he's equal to God the Father. Right? God the Son, God the Father are equal. They're both equal to God. Divine. And so Jesus uh, came and basically, Jesus forgives sin. So when, when you go to a priest for confession, you know, I mean it's Jesus who's forgiving. Not the priest. But that's a whole different topic. That's, so that's, that's like the topic of, of what priesthood is and what we profess priesthood to be. So when we say that God forgives us, I think we get lost a little bit if we start saying, well, is it God the Father that forgives me or God the Holy Spirit that forgives me? It's God that forgives me. But Jesus is the one who made that really possible. Yeah. But, uh, but I wouldn't even say that necessarily because even in the Old Testament, you know, before Jesus, there's all sorts of clear indications of God's forgiveness of his people. But also anger with his people. Yeah, he was, yeah, I mean, yes, anger with his people. Yeah, I mean, yep, that's another topic that we could get into as well, but I won't. <laughs> Any other questions? What you want me to do? What time are we supposed to go till? Eight? Isn't this great? See, you're not Father Eli back there, are you? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I just like the brevity. I'm really good at brevity. You know, I want a beer. That's all I want. I want to get home and have a beer. Any other questions whatsoever at all? I have one. Okay. Um, going back to the beginning, oh. the important question. Okay. But you mentioned there were two creation stories. Yeah. I know Adam and Eve. I don't know the other one. The other one was Bill and Susan. <laughs> so, no, so if you if you remember, okay, so okay, let me just tell you the two that you're gonna you're gonna remember both of them. Okay, I, I'm gonna just tell one element of the story that you're gonna remember. Okay, two different stories. So the one is is that how God created Adam and Eve. So God created Adam and Eve in one story, at, He created them at the same time by breathing life into their nostrils. Then there's the other story. Of God created Adam and Eve differently. He created Adam out of the ground, breathed life into him, but then he created woman afterwards when Adam could not find a suitable partner. Put him into a deep sleep 
and took the rib off the other side. You remember that? Yep. So we're talking about two different stories. They're both, you know, they're both in there. Can I tell you a joke? Sure. Okay, because it seems so appropriate. So there's actually there's actually a third version of that story. So yeah, oh yeah, no. I mean, so so the, the third version of the creation story. So we know the two. I kind of already went over the two. And in the third story of creation, it's actually, and this is lost, not really in the Bible, but it's in some really old manuscripts, where God creates Adam, and, and, and if you've heard this before, don't ruin it for me. And so God creates Adam, and, uh, and, and then Adam says, uh, well, I need a partner. You know, I, the, the zebras are just not going to do it for me. You know, and so, so God says, okay, well, uh, what kind of partner do you want? And, and Adam said, well, I want somebody who is going to love me all the time, who's going to agree with me, who's going to always be sweet, who's going to be cook, who's going to cook food for me, take care of me when I'm sick, who's going to be completely loyal and love me at all times. And and God said, "Well, that's a tall order." And Adam said, "Well, what's it, what's it going to cost me?" And, and God said, "An arm and a leg." And then Adam said, "Well, what will you give me for a rib?" <laughs> oh, no, so that none of the ladies like me right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's really not a third version. <laughs> All right. I don't. I don't want to like force questions out of you. I have no problem leaving early if you guys want to leave early. Going once. Oh, sister. Oh, and Chris. Chris, you're first. No, go ahead. I have a hard time um, with my jokes. No. <laughs> more jokes. Um, no, with you saying something like uh, everything that Catholics believe is logical. There's yeah. very few. You know, there's nothing in the gospel story that's logical. Like, you know, what can I do to get heaven? Well, you can't do anything. It's this son of a carpenter's got to die for you on a cross, and that's yeah. the way to have. Like, that's not logical. Right. And so, I'm not sure what you mean when you say, you know, every are you talking like in reference to the Bible, what we believe is logical because. You may you may remember me saying this. I, mean, I can't even remember where I said. Maybe I said it in RCIA where I talked about how Christianity is the most ridiculous religion in the whole world. If you didn't, you know, I mean, we, we only believe because of faith. But there is an utter ridiculous to it. You know, no other world religion has ever come close to claiming what we claim. You know, without faith, what we claim is bizarre. You know, and so in that regards, yeah, I'll give that. I'll grant you that. But when I'm talking about how everything in the church is logical, I'm talking about the fact that it te teaches truth, and and uh, the the doctrines and dogmas that come that the church teaches and professes to be true. Everything can be logically explained. As long as you're at that point of faith where you say, yeah, I believe that, that Jesus guy is God. If, I mean, even the, the illogic of that, if you get to the point of faith where you say, I believe that, I believe that Jesus is God. And I believe the Gospels as they're written and everything he says about himself, I believe. If you're at that point, if you can get to that point of faith, and then from that point on forward, everything that the church teaches is completely logical. You see what I'm saying? I do, but like as a non-Catholic, Right. You know, I'm I'm with you on that first point. Yep. You know, we agree we're on the starting point. Mm -hmm. But you know, you have PhDs on both sides of the aisle who know Greek and Hebrew and both claim the church have different. So yep. if it is truly logical, then mathematically we should be able to come to a two plus two is four. But we don't. Mm -hmm. We diverge on the on the particulars of a lot of these, you know, yep. a lot of these issues. And so, you know, so I think logic is a, it would, would, would mean that one person is at the end of the day you're illogical for believing what you believe mm -hmm. or just. No, no, no. So, so that's that's the way of the that's looking at it in a way that we wouldn't we wouldn't we would never phrase it in that way. Maybe back maybe back in the 1930s and 40s and before that we would have. But the Second Vatican Council, which is a we can get in that later. I mean, there's so many things I'm probably throwing out there that people are saying, "What the heck is that?" But so um, uh, so anyhow, so we would we don't say that those Lutherans they're wrong and we're right. Okay. Rather, what we say we put it in a more positive sense. We say that everybody and every religion has truth, okay? And, and, every, and various religions have various levels of the truth. The analogy is always the pie, okay? It's like, you know, you got the whole pie, and uh, every religion, even the most bass-ackwards religions, have some elements of truth to them. But we say only the Catholic Church has the fullness of revealed truth. That's not saying that, that Methodists are wrong, that's saying that they don't have the completeness of the full revealed truth that the Catholic Church has. And what RCIA is going to do over the process of this entire 
you know, semester or year is to go through these teachings. So there's no way I'm going to go through everything in one evening, but you stick to RCIA and, and pretty much most questions that you're going to have are going to be able to be addressed at certain times appropriately, all right, depending on what the subject matter is. And so at that point is when you can start listening to the logic as it's articulated, you know, and then uh, in the end, it always is a leap of faith, though, isn't it? It's always a leap of faith. Religion is not science, all right? The two go hand in hand, but you don't look at it in a petri dish like you do science, all right? So people can have different varies of levels of faith and come to different conclusions. But we as, as Catholics, we view, and this is where I said the last line of my notes was a, a loaded statement, uh, and this we'll get to this at a later time, is that we believe that the Catholic is the, the one true church that Christ himself established. And, uh, and because of that, and because of the nature of what the church is, is that the church teaches truth. And the church is not going to teach error, all right, in regards to faith and morals, because of the nature of it being the mystical body of Christ on earth, or the body of, that, of, of Christ. And so therefore, it's not going to teach error. And so um, uh, we will get to, and that's, that's why people are Catholic, right? And so some people, well, that, well, that's why Lutherans are Lutherans, right? Because they believe that, you know? And so, but in the process of RCIA, you will get throughout, if you stick with it and engage in it, you're going to understand why we teach what we teach and why we believe what we believe. And everything is going to be logical from that point forward, if, if that makes sense to some degree. Oh, that? Logical. Okay, thanks. Now, I'm not often accused of being logical, so I appreciate that. All right, you again. Okay, Would it be accurate to say that that Jesus Christ is the God of humanity or Earth, and that His Father is the God of the universe? No. No, the question is, would it be accurate to say that God, um, uh, God the Father is like God of the universe and God the Son or Jesus is the God of, of Earth? We, we, don't do ourselves any, um, uh, we don't do ourselves any good by trying to splice the Trinity. You know, I mean, we do, it, we do use certain terminology, traditional terminology, creator, sanctifier, redeemer, or whatever. I don't like that terminology, but God is God, all right? And so we don't, we don't try and split the Trinity. We say that God, as in the creed, you know, in the Nicene Creed that we say at Mass, that he is consubstantial with the Father which means he's the exact same substance. He is just as much God as God the Father is, as is God the Holy Spirit. And if you think that I'm going to explain the Trinity to where you understand it, you're sorely mistaken. <laughs> because nobody can explain it, and nobody can understand it. The one thing that holds all Christians, that all Christians hold in common, is the Trinity. All Christian religions hold the Trinity. If you don't believe in the Trinity, guess what? You're not Christian. So it's one of those things. It's like the commonality of all of us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if we, if we, there's a lot of people that are very, very brilliant, very, very smart, that uh, um, try to understand the Trinity will never get there because it's a, a mystery. And so we wouldn't, we wouldn't use terminology that God the Son is the God of the earth. And and I'll just give you one little story, and then I'm going to, and it's not a joke, it's just a story, uh, just to kind of articulate that a little bit better. The most brilliant, in my opinion, the most brilliant brain, probably in all Christianity, is a saint by the name of Augustine. All right? Augustine has impacted the Christianity, not just Catholicism, Christianity in a way that we cannot measure. All right? And so Augustine, now this is a story, is what we call urban legend, but there's some truth to it. Augustine was the bishop of a place called Hippo, which is in northern Africa, on the southern shores of the Mediterranean. And so the story goes that Augustine, who is trying to grasp and grapple with the whole concept of what Trinity is, is that Augustine went out one morning and was walking on the shore, and he saw a little boy dug a hole in the sand, and he had this little seashell, and he was going into the water, and then taking the water and going to pour it, pour it in this little, this little hole that the boy dug. And Augustine was sitting there watching him for a while, and he just decided to ask the boy. He said, so what are you doing? And the little kid said, well, I'm putting the sea. I want to put the sea in my hole that I dug. And Augustine said, that's impossible. You're never going to be able to do that. That's ridiculous. And the little boy said, I will sooner do that than you will figure out the Trinity. Uh -huh. And so 
an urban legend which gets to a larger truth. You know? All right, sister, okay, I, okay, go ahead. I'll be very brief. Okay, go ahead, sorry. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he says that a lot. See, it would have been a lot. I thought I loved brevity. You would have been even more brief. <laughs> All right. All right. You guys ready to say closing prayer? All right. All right. So, there, I mean, there's a lot of these Catholic prayers that some of you aren't Catholic and say, what the heck are these prayers? So just kind of follow along. We'll probably come up with little prayer books or something to get to you guys. But the glory be. That's how I was. And I start with the Our Father because I don't know how to say good prayers on my own words. I meant with the glory be because it's just appropriate. So, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.